0: Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
1: And a good afternoon to you all. Merry Christmas. Hope you all had a very wonderful Christmas day yesterday. It's always one of my favorite days of the year. I remember uh, growing up, my mom actually had a rule on Christmas. Nobody was allowed to change out of their PJs because it was supposed to be a a day of complete peace and relaxation. And one year, some of our younger cousins were going sledding. We actually had a white Christmas that year. And uh, my younger siblings siblings wanted to go sledding with their cousins. And so we uh, put our snow pants on over our PJs and went sledding and then came back and still stayed in our PJs the whole day. Um, But uh, we are continuing the Crest in the Afternoon Countdown today after taking that little break yesterday for the special Christmas programming. And in this hour, Scott Hahn joins us with biblical wisdom for exiles. In his second letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul assures us that as Christians, we are always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested. The same power that converted the world in the first century is still converting the world today. And if, as you've seen from Scott Hahn over the years, he's written a lot about what is this meaning of religion. And in this book, Catholics in exile, biblical wisdom for the journey home, uh, Dr. Hahn writes religion forms societies and the essential action of the virtue of religion is worship or sacrifice. Sacrifice proceeds from love. We sacrifice for what we love. And what we love, we also admire. Thus, sooner or later, we become what we worship. For example, in worshiping the golden calf, an Egyptian symbol of wealth and strength and virility, Israel reverted to the idols of money, sex, and power in their Egyptian form. God's people needed to be refreshed, revitalized, and reborn. Also from From Froma, Scott's book. From the day the gospel dawned in the world, Christians have occupied a remarkable place. Citizens of heaven, but heirs to the world, Loving the world, yet persecuted by the world. Similar themes to what Al has explored in his uh, discussions on Romans 12, too, about be not conformed to this world. A yeah, second second century author once remarked that Christians are to the world what the soul is to the body. It was people of faith who transformed a Greco-Roman civilization and empowered it to thrive. And uh, in this book that Scott has written, that we'll be discussing with us in this hour, he shows how the same power that converted the world In the first century, still converting the world today. Providence is not like a sporting event or the stock market or the battlefield where progress can be measured. But it is more reliable than any measurement we have. And so uh, at number 14 in the countdown, Scott Hahn joining us. Scott's the author of more than 40 books including this book, uh, Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. He's also a Father Michael Scanlon Professor in Biblical Theology and New Evangelization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, where he has taught since 1990. Dr. Hahn's the founder and president of the St. Paul Center, an apostolate dedicated to teaching Catholics to read scripture from the heart of the church. You can learn more about his work at stpaulcenter.com. And then in the next hour, we... uh, it's a little bit of a different one of the fun things about this countdown is the amount of variety you get even in a single day. And so we go from this biblical wisdom to looking at somebody who certainly considered the Bible, but would have interpreted it differently than most. And that's Mark Twain. Uh, few authors are more distinctly American than Mark Twain. Uh, Huck Finn is considered to be you know, the quintessential American novel and uh, in actually interesting when he was writing that book, Twain went to great lengths to make sure that the dialects of the various peoples of the uh, southern U.S. were accurate Twain was a complicated man, we've talked about this a, f- a few times over the years and his views on politics and religion are often misunderstood even to this day, he's got a-, a few little quotes that new atheists love to kind of pull out and say, oh see this shows that Twain hated religion, well Mark Twain certainly was not an Orthodox Christian, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And so we examine how religion is portrayed in his works and how Mark Twain was haunted by God with Joseph Sicilla. Dr. Joseph Sicilla is the head of the English Language and Literature Department at Eastern Michigan University, and he joins us in the second hour of today's program. He's also the co-author of Heretical Fictions, Religion in the Literature of Mark Twain. We will actually skip the news today and get right to that conversation with Scott Hahn. Let's take it away, Al. The best. Best.
2: Best. best, 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 of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. <laughs> Number 14.
3: Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. Scott Hahn. He's the author of more than 40 books, and most recently, Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. He's the Father Michael Scanlon Professor of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, where he's taught since 1990. He's the founder and president of the St. Paul Center, uh, an apostolate that's dedicated to teaching Catholics to read Scripture uh, from the heart of the Church. And you can learn more at stpaulscenter.com Scott, great to have you back. Thanks. It's great to be back with you, Al. Thank you. I love the way you start uh, this book. Uh, you quote from the First Papal Encyclical, First uh, Peter chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. To the exiles of the dispersion, chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Uh, The first century Christians saw themselves in exile. What does that mean?
4: Well, it's spelled out for us in what really is the foundational text from Scripture for our book, Catholics in Exile. We take our bearings from Hebrews 11, which is known as the Hall of Faith,
5: Mm -hmm.
4: you know, beginning with uh, the earliest witnesses to faith, Abel himself as well as uh, Noah, perhaps most notably Abraham, and, you know, we associate Abraham... With his faith as a spiritual father but also his uh his seeking out a promised land and it's so tempting to reduce that promise to that slice of geography in palestine whatever you call it you know and it's roughly the size of new jersey uh, maybe a little bit bigger but the fact is abraham understood that when he set out in his old age for that land It was really a land that was meant to be a homeland of sorts, but also a kind of geographical sign that pointed to the ultimate homeland, which alone is heaven. And, you know, you might think, well, that's a Christian reading of the Old Testament, but what you discover as you work through the Law and the Prophets, you discover that already in the Second Temple Period, long before the Incarnation of Christ, this was a strong awareness that grew even stronger Precisely because the people of God were in exile for centuries. And so the old testament, as you know, it, it feels like a story in search of an ending with the people of God <laughs> right. dispersed. Yeah. But the New Testament, as you just quoted from First Peter, you know, it, it, it's almost unintelligible apart from the old. And so you have something more than a mashup. You really have promises that are fulfilled, but the fulfillment is almost always something that exceeds the the highest hopes of the ordinary hebrews but the men of faith are described in hebrews 11 the hall of faith you know even abraham what do we read in verse 10 he looked forward to the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is god and it goes on to describe others who died in faith not having received what was promised but even when they are in the promised land they're longing for something greater in verse 16 But as it is, they desire a better country. Why? Because they're just discontent? You know, they're hard to please? No! Because they realize that what God was really primarily ordering our lives to is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city, just like He has for us. So the earthly Jerusalem was already understood in the intertestamental period as a signpost on this planet of a heavenly jerusalem the earthly temple made with hands was a sign that pointed to a divine temple not made with hands which is our inheritance and so whether it's first peter whether it's hebrews 11 or even whether you go back and read jeremiah who we also really yeah. have fun yeah. focusing on you just get the sense that both in the old testament and the new all the way into the second century you know we are fond of drawing from this anonymous document that is remarkable, one of my favorites, and I suspect one of yours, too, the Epistle to Diognetus, where Christians are to the world what the soul is to the body. Mm -hmm. And so unlike Jews who had their own country, their own towns, and that sort of thing, early on, the Christians were, as citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land to them is a native country, and every native land of their birth is a land of strangers. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. This doesn't make them bleak, depressed, and sort of so heavenly-minded they're of no earthly good. Right. It makes them fearless. You know, they recognize what Paul told the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. Well, I mean, the technical term in the in Greek that was used legally, polytuma. Our commonwealth, our citizenship in heaven doesn't mean to neglect the town of Philippi. No, we've got dual citizenship, but one is much higher and holier than the other. And so you coordinate your activities accordingly.
3: Yeah, and, and again, uh, from Jeremiah, the, the picture you get there of those in exile, they are not moping around in Babylon waiting for good things to happen. They're, they're there being fruitful. They're participating. They are a source of blessing, even for the captives, uh, even for the captors. Um, Right. So it's
5: exactly
3: yeah. So this this is something we need to keep in mind because, as you point out in the book, we're we're um, exiled from Christendom, uh, the political social manifestation of the the faith, and of course we're still um, exiled from heaven, or at least apart from heaven. Um, do you a lot of people right now? And I know you've had dealt with this. A lot of people feel alien, even alienated from the church institutionally. You know, people came in enthusiastic with a lot of passion, and they've had they feel uh, they feel a lack of uh, forceful leadership, evangelical leadership. There's uh, a sense that um, we're not sure what's happening. We've got this synod on the synodality. So we've got, you know, the loss of Christendom. Uh, we're apart from heaven. We are concerned about even our immediate community of the faithful here. How do you, how do you counsel people who are worried right now about the state of the I Church?
4: Mean, yeah, I mean, two or three thoughts come to mind. First things first, we have been given the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, not just to make a few disciples in each and every one of the nations, but the nations themselves are called to recognize the Lordship of Christ. And so we realize through history and our own experience that if we're not out there converting culture, the culture will seep in right. and convert us. And that's really what's been happening. And so what we've got to avoid, this is a second thought, is just to lapse into a sort of depressed nostalgia. You know, for for example, the 1950s, with right, right. Colton Sheen winning an Emmy, you know, and Bing Crosby playing a priest in The Bells of St. Mary, and the good old preconciliar days, which is hogwash. I mean, there are. <laughs> I was
3: raised in that. that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't I that was great. The beneficiary. <laughs> <laughs> right.
4: You know, the other tendency, as you just alluded to, you know, a third point would be if only we could go back to the age of medieval Christendom. For yeah. example, in the 12th and 13th centuries, with you know, the King of France, St. Louis, or Innocent the Third, and the Fourth Lateran Council, and, you know, we have St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas, and the glory days. But, I mean, anyone back then who was a saint would have told us, just point blank, we're not home. Christendom <laughs> is not home. Right. Christendom gets us back to the first point. We want to make disciples of all nations. We want to convert our culture, lest it kind of pervert us You know, but even then, I mean, if we had been standing in the middle of the Temple of Jerusalem on the Passover, the faithful back then, like the saints in the 13th century, would say, hey, none of us are home yet. We want to get to the home of the Father, we want to see the face of the Father, and only when we pass from a state of grace to a state of glory. And until then, we're going to mourn this false freedom that represents our proclivity to sin and to betray our Savior. You know, and so we do finally have hope. And again, and I, I would say, just like it was in the second century, when the epistle to Diagnetus was was written and sent, there really is a quality of a uh, fearlessness and hope that the more we cultivate a life of prayer and interiority, the more, as Saint Catherine of Siena would say, "On the way to heaven is heaven." Yeah, because Christ dwells in us; the power of the Holy Spirit is active in us. And we were promised really, you know, a cross along the way, and the crown is what awaits us. And so I just think we've got to get back to the basics and realize that when we profess the creator, we say to our Father, these fundamental acts of faith are all pointing us in the exact same direction. Yeah. As it was in the old when they handly had promises, as it is in the new when we see a partial fulfillment, receiving the sacraments and all of that. Yep. You know, I, I come back to a book that I wrote about four years ago, and as I was com- as I was completing it, I, I entered into a friendship with uh, Brandon McGinley. He became an editor and a conversation partner. It was called the First Society. You and I talk about it, yeah. yeah. And it, you know, it was subtitled "The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order," where I began the book by hearkening back to my first semester as a PhD student, still a Protestant, at Marquette. And the illustrious Father Donald Keefe was leading a discussion, a lecture, when all of a sudden he just stared out into space and opined out loud. It was like a throwaway line. He said, you know, we could debate this until, you know, the cows come home. But he said, if Catholic married couples simply live the grace of the sacrament of matrimony for one generation, the result would be a transformed culture. It would be, in effect, a Christian society. And my first instinct was like, wow, you know right sure and then i i just thought about it and it felt like on the back of my retina this laser beam landed and i thought this guy's right you know more than the politicians and the promises they make it really is the husbands and wives who becomes fathers and mothers and whether they keep their promises and vows or not because this is where the covenant resides and so from the bottom up we can do a whole lot in spite of the fact that we face a whole lot of corruption. You know, I was rereading the book just a couple of weeks ago when I was handing it off to some friends, and it just struck me that we live... we think of people who strive to be virtuous and how they find themselves afraid of their government leaders and even their priestly clergy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the Holy Family in Bethlehem. That's us in the 21st century, as much as it was them back in the first.
3: Scott, hold have got to take a break and come back. Um, my guest, Dr. Scott Hahn, talking about the experience of being exiles. Uh, The book is Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. It's, of course, available in the online bookstore, and we'll be right back.
6: Father Benedict Rochelle. Some great people have shown respect for God. Can I read you a little quotation from Albert Einstein, who many times showed a great respect for religion and was one of the great admirers of Pope Pius XII for his stand against the Holocaust during the Second World War. Einstein wrote, "...the fairest thing we can experience is the mysterious." Is the fundamental emotion that stands at the cradle of all true art and science. A knowledge of the existence of something we can't penetrate, of the manifestations of the profoundest reason and the most radiant beauty, which are only accessible to our minds in the most elementary form. It is this knowledge and this emotion that constitute the truly religious attitude. Oh my, so beautifully said.
7: The people you know and trust are on EWTN. How important was unity to Jesus Christ? Very, according to the Catholic Catechism. He bestowed unity on his church at the outset. It is something the church can never lose, but with prayer and work, she can improve. This is why, the Catholic Catechism says, Jesus himself prayed at the hour of his passion and continues praying that they may all be one, As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, may they also be one in us. The Catechism further states, The desire to recover the unity of all Christians is a gift of Christ and a call of the Holy Spirit. The Catechism says there are certain things required in order to respond adequately to this call. A permanent renewal of the Church, conversion of the heart, prayer in common, fraternal knowledge of each other, ecumenical formation— dialogue among theologians and Christians, collaboration in good works. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. This program is
5: brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter.
8: Are you longing to hear God's voice? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com. The
5: wisdom of Mother Angelica. Isn't it awesome that we today do not recognize his presence in the Eucharist? Is it because we really don't go to him in humbleness of heart and say, Lord, I don't believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I want to see you. I want to recognize you. I cannot live without you. Are we saying that?
8: EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic.
5: Dr. Ray Garendi. To vent or not? If I get it off my chest, then I feel better. I've got to vent. Is this so? It's old theory somewhat like a catharsis. You've got to purge yourself of these emotions and Lord help anyone who's standing in the way. It's old theory. It's inaccurate. Venting is generally not good for the hearers and it's not good for the venter. Venting may be good for dryers. It's not good for people. When we vent, we become more likely to vent. And when we are more likely to vent, we are more likely to hurt and say things we shouldn't say. Careful on the venting. Better to think about what you have to say before
2: you vent. The best, 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 best Best. 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 of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 14.
3: And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Scott Hahn. He's recently authored, uh, with Brendan McGinley, the book Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. And it starts out with a reflection from uh, the first letter of St. Peter, the first papal encyclical. And uh, the primary social duty of the Christian is to communicate the grace of Christ to the world. And uh, he begins with a description of the living hope that is Christ. So when we're surrounded by circumstances that seem to make us think that we've been displaced, that um, we only have counsels of despair around us, uh, what we need to do is return back to this theme, which uh, shows up there in, in the first letter of Peter, but it also shows up in Jeremiah's prophecy uh, to the exiles. And that is that we can live fruitful hopeful lives no matter what our circumstances and Scott I wanted to ask you um, you you mentioned the epistle to Diagnetus we can be at home anywhere and everywhere no matter what our circumstances and I'm uh, wanting to pursue that uh, a, a little bit further by asking you to give us some examples from those great Christian leaders who had to live in a sense, in exile in their homelands, like um, Cardinal Wyszynski.
4: Yeah, you know, we had three or four different great saints to choose from, but both Brandon and I really felt that Cardinal Wyszynski would be the best for two reasons. Number one, because nobody's ever heard of him, at least most <laughs> American Catholics. Right, right. And number two, because everybody's heard of John Paul II, right. and everybody thinks that he is just this lone star... And yet he was always insistent that he was like the spiritual son of Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski. And when we discovered more about him in his writings, but also in his biography, it's just downright inspiring. We've just got no room for anxiety, fear, anger, sadness. When we see this man, you know, he he was born in 1901 in Poland, but at the time it was under czarist Russia, and then he died in nineteen eighty one in you know, in Poland under the Soviets still, and yet the Soviets reluctantly allowed the Poles to celebrate his funeral for four days uh-huh. and why? well, because he was in a certain sense that sort of fearless pilgrim who knows he's in exile and thus is at home anywhere so when he found himself made Bishop of Lublin, which of course becomes the spiritual center, like Warsaw would be the political capital, Mm -hmm. and then when he was made the bishop um, in 1946, and then the primate of all Poland just about four or five years later, he was a prisoner for years under the Soviets. He was also uh, questioned and uh, held by the Nazis, and so what would he do? Well, he wasn't primarily attacking his political opponents. He was pastoring the flock. He was helping marriages and families flourish in spite of all of the political circumstances, the economic duress. He was also working with, with Catholics out in the factories, working with trade unions. But he was writing about prayer. He was writing about marital fidelity. He was writing about how to turn work into worship. Yeah and yeah. you know in so many ways he he to me he's a lot like saint jose maria Escrivá, uh who survived the spanish civil war and all mm-hmm. but this was like for 50 60 70 years and john paul would be the first to say that he wouldn't be who he was apart from the spiritual mentoring the fathering that came from Wujinski.
3: yeah
4: and uh i'm convinced that you know, as you read in Jeremiah, and we talk a lot in the book about the so-called Jeremiah option, which we're offering as an alternative. You read about, you know, Jeremiah's circumstances, and how the Assyrians took out the north, how the Babylonians have come down to the south, and how the society is really divided. It's polarized. You know, in Jeremiah 24, you've got the parable of the basket of good figs and rotten right. figs. Mm-hmm. And everybody assumes that the, the good figs are the lucky ones who survived and are her flourishing in Jerusalem, and the bad figs are the poor souls who are scattered <laughs> out in Babylon. Right.
3: It's exactly
4: the other way around. Yep. Yeah. And so when we look and see the people who have the power in Washington or in the Vatican, and we just feel so alienated, the fact is, this is the way it usually is. Let's not glamorize or fall into the temptation of nostalgia. You know, right before the break, I I mentioned that back in the first century, when people were striving to be virtuous and godly, they too were afraid of their government, and not just the civil rulers like Herod the Great, but also the complicit clergy who were corrupt. They knew full well in telling Herod that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that Herod wasn't about to make that pilgrimage to worship a baby. No, they understood the rivalry, the hostility, as well as the murderous intention. And so the Holy Family had to flee. And after they did, I mean, they were in exile, as it were, down in Egypt. That's why we dedicated the book to the Holy Family. But it's not just an isolated circumstance. When Herod dies and they come back and they go to Nazareth, even then, it would be filled with tension. And you track that trajectory all the way to Holy Week, you know, and on the one hand, Hosanna in the highest, the triumphal entry, and then crucify him, crucify him, Barabbas, Barabbas, you've got the High Priest, you've got the Pontifex Maximus, you've got basically the Jewish Pope who has turned against the Messiah. And so I think what we ought to do is scratch our heads and ask ourselves, why are we shocked? We ought to be shocked that we were shocked! (laughs) Because Biblical history and Church history line up and show us that this is business as usual. And you know we really ought to stop complaining and just really follow Wyszynski's example, as the Polish Catholics did. They ended up creating a stronger Catholic Polish culture under the Nazis and the Soviets than what has transpired since the Iron Curtain came down. The tsunami of secularization, pornography, and all kinds, they're still standing up much better than we are. And I think that's also due in part to the influence of Cardinal Wyszynski as well as Cardinal Voltiwa. John Paul II. We are in a good place, relatively speaking, as American Catholics. We have a lot of different means of formation yep. and a lot of different apostolates. I mean, our friends in Europe are jealous, but at the same time, we're not nearly where we ought to be. And that, the barometer of that is how quickly we give in to anger, sadness, anxiety. And it's so understandable. It is so, it's so reasonable at one level. And yet, at the same time, you know, Peter Kreft is fond of r- pointing out that the world was made by God to be a saint-making machine. Yeah. And if we remember that, we would say, "Well, it's working." You know, <laughs> it's uh, it's working. And if we let it, it will turn us into saints.
8: Yeah. And our kids
3: too. Yeah. Now, I again, you mentioned Jeremiah. Um, this is the. the Two baskets of figs, a great example, because there you have those who go into exile. Uh, They're the ones we think are going to be in trouble. But uh, they're given advice, and the advice is uh, going into exile, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, uh, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. And they can live out a godly life by building, by planting, by procreating. They're living. These are expressions of hope for the future, and uh, exactly, yeah. And they're not. They're not worried about. Well, I can't do it. We're not near Jerusalem anymore. We're here in Babylon. We can't possibly do God's will here, or you know, bring forth, uh, bear proper witness uh, to His kingdom. So I, I think this is. Very, very important message uh, for us for us today. It goes right to the cultivation of the theological virtue of hope as well, uh, and how to live in hope in the midst of circumstances which can be very trying. Um, I, I did want to, uh, I wanted to make sure that we uh, uh, talked about the uh, what did I put, put my notes here? Um, yeah, you make a distinction in the very beginning of the book, which I, I hadn't heard before which is uh, looking at Cain and Abel, and you're looking at the difference between jealousy and envy, and um, you see Cain there uh, acting like Satan. And so I'm, I'm. what's the connection that you're drawing in that chapter between impiety, envy, and violence, and um, what's that mean for us now?
4: Well, you know, you can see our first father and mother and how their family was deeply divided, like our church feels sometimes today. And then, you know, three thoughts. First of all, you have fratricide. Cain kills Abel. Mm -hmm. And why? Abel didn't do anything to him. He just made him look bad. But he didn't even do that. He just offered an acceptable sacrifice of the firstlings of his flocks and herds, whereas Cain offers fruit. It's not the first fruit. It's not the best. Why give the best to God? You save the best for yourself. And so even at that point, God would still give Cain a chance. You can come back to me. You can offer an acceptable sacrifice. But the only sacrifice that proved to be acceptable to Cain was to offer his brother to kill him Mm. instead. And so... What you begin to sense is that this is not jealousy. Jealousy would have said, hey, brother, let's make an exchange so that I can get something that I could offer God as an acceptable sacrifice like you did. Envy is resentment. The confusion between these two terms is practically universal in America today. Jealousy is usually bad, but it can be good for either Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. So when you want something that is rightly yours, there's nothing wrong with being jealous for it envy is only and always evil. In fact, it's one of the seven deadly sins. And in Wisdom 224, we discover that identifies the prideful motive of the devil in taking out. He's not going to end up happier in hell because we're there with them. Right. Misery loves company, but it doesn't make it any less miserable. So envy is really, in a certain sense, rejoicing at the misfortune of others or a resentment of their advantages. And so when God speaks to Cain about killing his brother and says, you're basically going to be a sojourner. You know, what does Cain say? My punishment is greater than I can bear. In other words, God, there's a serious injustice that's been committed here today, and it's against me. I'm the victim. You know, it's not Cain who I killed. It's me who's punished with a difficult life. And so this idea of claiming victim status and empowerment through victimhood you begin to get a sense of satanic psychology that psychologists today haven't even noticed yet, even though it's practically institutionalized and systemic. I mean, we really do have institutionalized envy in so many parts of our country, and even in the Church.
9: Yeah.
3: And I'll tell you, God's words to Cain says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. As you're right, God's trying to show Cain that it's what he himself does and not what Abel does in comparison that matters.
10: Scott, we'll be right back. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
0: The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization.
11: Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There's so many issues that need to be discussed when we're looking at this continuing problem of mass shootings. At the heart of it is what's going on with the human person, though. Father John Ricardo brings up deaths of despair in great detail in his beautiful Rescue Project series. Or so many young people now, or with that survey pre COVID, were talking about how desperate they felt, how lonely they felt, how isolated they felt how suicidal they felt. And then we had a recent survey come out from the CDC looking at a similar case with young girls and this feeling of desperation and loneliness that despite everything they had access to and what they could do with their bodies, this so-called freedom, the world's version of freedom that shoved down our throats every single day, they're still not happy. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Father Benedict Groeschel.
6: I often go back to my childhood. In church, we loved to be reverent, to Christ present in the Eucharist, to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band, and I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church, And I was just a child, but I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular, and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class.
8: EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo.
12: I tell oftentimes an experience that I had at Divine Child when I was a young priest, one year ordained. First time I ever really saw the power of the Blessed Sacrament. And we simply exposed the Blessed Sacrament at the end of Mass one night. I encouraged people. I said, you know what, we've been in the habit of praying over people after Mass. I said, we're not going to do that this week. I'm just going to invite people to come on up and pray if they want to pray. And I put the blessed sacrament on the altar. I kneel down. As I kneel down, the church is in the sanctuary, the whole church. And as I'm looking at this and I'm looking at the people there and I'm looking at Jesus under the appearance of bread there, I saw the Lord standing on the altar. And he's just standing there looking out at all the people. And then at a certain point, he turned towards me and he just bowed. And he says, don't you see how easy this is? You don't have to do anything. You just have to put me out. You put me out, and I will work.
2: The best, 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 best Best. 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 of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 14. Good afternoon,
3: I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Scott Hahn, Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. Scott, throughout the book uh liturgy is plays role uh, just about every chapter i mean you start out the first act of violence you point out is about true and false worship okay cain and abel then you've got uh israel's desert sojourn which is a liturgical pilgrimage and um, you also have uh, urging us to prioritize liturgical prayer Tell me how important why is it so important to rely upon right liturgy uh, during this time uh, when we're trying to remember who we are and what our future will be?
4: Well, let me place this book in its context because in some ways, it's the sequel to a book that Brandon and I published right back in 2020. It is right and just why the future of civilization depends on true religion. And of course, that's lifted right from the liturgy where it's truly right and just. It's our duty and our salvation always and everywhere to give God thanks and praise. So it's not just private, it's it's public, it's not just individual, it's social. And so what we do is the epitome. It's the height of social justice. And it draws down more grace for ourselves, our marriages and families, our neighborhoods, as well as our towns and cities. And so if you understand the, the virtue of justice, in some cases can be repaid when you check out at the grocery store, pay for the stuff. In other cases, the debt is irreparable. You cannot repay God. You can give him sacrifice. And that's what Abel does. That's what Cain refuses. And so what we're doing throughout the book is not only tracing salvation history from the old to the new, but picking up right where Augustine left off when he wrote The City of God, the Mm -hmm. first theology of history that becomes the, the, the paradigm for church history. I mean, he's writing right after Alaric and the Visigoths, these barbarians, succeeded in sacking Rome, which nobody had ever succeeded in doing for over 800 years. Everybody, I mean, they weren't rattled. They were shaken to the very core. And so what Augustine does is to situate the city of man, which goes back to the devil, based upon self-love even to the contempt of God, against the city of God, which is rooted in the love of God even to the contempt of self, and that's what sacrifice is. If you're going to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you're not just loving Him with the first 10%, you're loving Him with all of your soul as well as your body. And so for persons, and also for families, and also for cultures, the idea of liturgy, sacrificial worship, you know, this is what the Third Commandment is all about. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You work for six days, and you work really hard, you work really well, but that work is order to worship. The fruit of our labor becomes holy through the liturgy. And so you see it throughout the Exodus. It's the, it's the Passover liturgy that liberates them. It's the covenant liturgy that they get at Sinai when they become not just a nation, but a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, you see it also in the Apocalypse. Uh, A number of people who have read this book, who also read It is Right and Just, and the First Society, the Sacrament of Matrimony, and the Restoration of the Social Order, see it as a trilogy. A friend of mine described it as Christ's kingship trilogy, Mm. starting in the marriage, then the society, and then in the church in the middle of the world. But another friend of mine just said, no, the narrative arc really begins with the Lamb's Supper. When you (laughs) show us that in the worship of Heaven, the Church is singing the same songs, making the same prayers and the sacrifice, and this is the only thing that got the Church through the first century of persecution, Mm -hmm. but for that matter, all of the subsequent centuries as well, it is God's presence hiding in plain view in the Holy Eucharist. That empowers people who are outnumbered, who are surrounded, who are infiltrated, who are anxious, who are angry, but it enables these people to hoist their fears up onto the altar, because the altar is Christ himself, Yes, and then Christ transforms that into a kind of fearless trust, and he turns us into faithful people if we let Him, if we prioritize heaven over earth, the soul over the body, eternity over time, it's just Catholic math. Do the math, and you realize this is how saints become, you know, this is how sinners become saints in very deep, dark, and sinful times.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the, the liturgy is uh, given to us, it, it, it gives us a way of uh, entering uh, into eternity now and receiving from eternity, uh christ himself who we need uh as our teacher as our guide and who is in fact uh anxious for us to bear proper witness and i think this is where people feel like they they can't it can't happen for them i think they think that the circumstances are so bad that somehow they can't live the fruitful life that is promised those who are in exile, uh, again, going back to 1 Peter. Um, but liturgy is supposed to remind us that we are, again, the kingdom has already been inaugurated, but it's not yet here in its fullness. And that with that in mind, we are able to live fruitful lives, even under the most difficult circumstances. Um, I right. think that's, that's you know, when you, so important. When
4: you think of- when I think of uh, the marching orders that God gave to Israel after spending 40 flipping years in the desert, yeah, They're to attack, you know, there, there to attack the Promised Land, but beginning with Jericho, no, I mean that's an impregnable fortress. That's a stronghold. They have no military experience, so build up to that gradually. You know, take out the low-hanging fruit, the, sm- the, the small towns and villages. But, of course, the battle is the Lord's, and so the weapons <laughs> right. are not Israelite, they're liturgical. Yep. And so you have the Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant in seven days of liturgical procession. to The seventh day is seven circuits around Jericho, then seven trumpets are blown, which is a call to worship. And so the Israelites are supposed to give him thanks and praise for what? Just do it, and you'll see, and they did it, and archaeologists still can't figure out what brought that city down. (laughs) That's the power of liturgy. That's the power of a friend of mine, Clement Harold, who's at Notre Dame right now, speaks of theocentric humanism. You know, a lot of people were trying to formulate a kind of Christian humanism. But, you know, when you recognize who God is, you've got to be honest and be God-centered. That's what theocentric is. But when you discover God... The Father sends His Son to become a human to pour out the Spirit of Adoption. You realize that that God is sort of centered on us, and so God is better at reforming and saving and sanctifying humans than we are. So if we remain God-centered in all of our daily activities, you know, from morning through noon, and then when we get home from work, we cross the the Jordan, we enter the Promised Land, we get home, we might be tired. But let's not forget, that's a sacrament, that's a covenant, marriage and family, not the factory, not the law firm. Right, right. And so we just make an adjustment and put God first and realize that's the only logical way to live. Yeah. Anything else would just be unreasonable and illogical. And so, you know, it was Frank Sheet who drew that correlation between sanctity and sanity. Yes. And the converse, of course, is a lack of sanctity creates a kind of cultural insanity. Sanity, yeah. We're not that far off, yeah.
3: Talk to us about how, in a practical way, we should understand and practice Sunday observance. Well, you know, in the last
4: section of the book, the last three chapters are based upon Cardinal Wyszynski's example, under the worst of circumstances. And we draw a quote, of course, at the end of Matthew 11, where Jesus says come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest and you know come to me is perhaps the single most important thing we can hear and respond Mm. to the Lord of Lords who died for us is inviting us you know he, he would be within his rights to just simply demand it command it I mean but he invites us come to me why because he knows we're labor and we're heavy laden we're burdened and what does he want to do he wants to give us rest Brandon and I both realized that coming up with an example like Wyszynski's life, his work, and then his writings, I think would signal the most profound yet practical way to see our way, individually and, again, as parishes or as families. But the alternative that I was thinking about seriously for a while was spending the last three chapters just focusing on the Sabbath in the Old, the Lord's Day in the New. And how this is the only commandment out of the ten that uses the word kadosh. I point this out in my book, holy is his name. Mm. And so remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Yeah. You don't just remember, oh, it's Saturday in the old and it's Sunday in the new. You don't just set your alarm and say, okay, Lord, you know, thank you. It's remembering in the sense of commemoration. You know, I just called Bernadette, our granddaughter, to you know to sing happy birthday to her along with Kimberly, Because we don't just remember it's her birthday, we celebrate her life. We don't forget that she was born all of the 364 days of the year. So to remember the Sabbath day is to basically establish a rhythm to life so that what you're doing for six days is ordered to the seventh. What you're doing in work is sanctified through worship. And all of the fruit of your labor, again, is consecrated through the liturgy. And so it's not just for you, it's for your wife, it's your sons and daughters, your manservants, your maidservants, even the oxen, the asses, and the sojourners. It's the great equalizer. It shows us that whatever social hierarchy we have in our culture, ultimately before God, we are all His. His sons and daughters, His children. And so if you have employees, give them rest so that they can discover what you know, that you can rediscover what they forget, and that is we are all children of God, first, foremost, and last, not employees, not employers. And so, uh, to me, if we were to really take seriously the Lord's Day, if we were to take it half seriously, so that it's not just one hour out of 24, but time for family, time for prayer, time for recreation, but also just look at what the Orthodox Jews with their Sabbaths, with their candles, with their prayers, and how strong of a culture that they form mm-hmm. out of it. And I would say, as Catholic Christians, we're not going to end up forming something less strong. And this is why D. H. Domine, that great letter that Pope St. John Paul II wrote on keeping the Lord's Day, it's not just individual pietism. It really is a social program. Little by little, Orthodox Jews in exile over the years, in the last century and a half, have exerted their own spiritual tradition of the Sabbath, And have created pockets of piety, but strength, cultural power. And I would say that if God blesses that in one way or another, He wants to bless what we would do, I think, far more. Mass is obviously first and foremost. Getting ready for it, you know, for the family. But then living it out for the rest of the day. And not just simply flipping on the dial and then looking at, you know, the different football games. There's nothing inherently evil about that, but there's something intrinsically distracting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think we just have to put first things first.
3: Well, I, and you you have an extended quota from Carl Wyszynski um, dealing with the Lord's Day, and it, it follows right. a thought of yours, which says, We work in part precisely in order to be able to be obedient to God's call to rest, and in doing so, our work becomes a kind of prayer. Every type of work is a link that binds us to the created world, to our neighbors, and to God. And by means of this bond of friendship, our work is changed into prayer. It's not enough for the human heart to devote the whole day or even six days of the week to binding sheaves. For it to be fully satisfied, there must be a possibility for him to offer his sheaves to God. And so work for six days always prepares for the seventh day of the Lord. (laughs) That that links it all together. It's beautiful. Excellent. Thank you. Hey, Scott, thanks. I appreciate your what work. Joy. Thanks. We'll talk again.
4: You're welcome, Al. Thank you. You keep up the great work, too, dear brother.
3: Thank you. Catholics in exile. Biblical wisdom for the journey home. Dr. Scott Hahn. I'm Al
5: Cresta. Now, Catechism Wisdom with me, Dr. Ray Garendi, and Father Larry Richards. My peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I heard that before. I'm quoting. Scripture. I'm quoting. Wow. He knows the Bible. Can you imagine? Yeah, well, why shouldn't we feel peaceful with our faith? Apparently, this person does not. Let me run this by Who you, are Father you? Larry. Is this guy here? No. I know my faith should be a source of peace, but I don't always feel that peace. I worry a lot about sinning. Mm. And even after confession, I don't always feel forgiven. Now, it's not me, this is this is a person writing in here. I love that, well, it drives me
13: crazy, that exact thing, I don't feel forgiven. I say, <laughs> Christianity has nothing to do with your feelings, it's not about feeling. You know, again, people say, Father, I wanna confess something because I've confessed it 50 times but I don't feel forgiven, I go, don't you dare. You don't hit people in confession, do you? sometimes, if they're big men, sometimes. But the reality is I'll say, listen, it's not about you, how you feel one drop of the blood of Jesus Christ is enough to cover your sins. Why would you give Satan glory by confessing it again and again and again? So you're saying, Jesus, your blood isn't enough to cover my sin that I've confessed, that I've repented for. And the devil, the devil loves, 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 loves to keep us focused on ourselves and our past. Jesus says, you look at me and look at the future, that if a person confesses their sins, then he will save us and he will forgive us. And again, what's necessary is repentance, of course. You just can't say, I'm sorry, that's never enough. You need to repent of sin, which means, God, I did this, and by your grace, I'm not gonna do it anymore. And so if you have a repentant heart and you say, you know, again, in our weakness, we might fall, but Lord, by your grace, I'm not gonna do this anymore, then have be at peace.
1: Thank you for being with us over that last hour. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Scott Hahn. I'll quote once more from his book. This is Cardinal Stephen Wyszynski, former Polish cardinal, who writes that every type of work is a link that binds us to the created world, to our neighbors, and to God. By means of this bond of friendship, our work is changed into prayer. It is not enough for the human heart to devote the whole day or even six days of the week to binding sheaves. For it to be fully satisfied, there must be a possibility for him to offer his sheaves to God. And so work for six days always prepares us for the seventh day of the Lord. Uh, Scott's book, Catholic in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home, is available in the online store at AveMariaRadio.net, along with several of his other books. And in the next hour, we'll go a different direction. Number 13 in the countdown, How Mark Twain Was Haunted by God. Joseph Cicilla is going to be joining us. He's the author of Heretical Fictions, Religion and the Literature of Mark Twain. A uh, few authors are more distinctly American than Mark Twain. He's a complicated man with a lot of complicated views on politics, religion, and others, and although he would not have considered himself at the time of his death a uh, Orthodox Christian, still certainly a man who uh, was highly influenced by religion in his works. We'll explore that with Joseph Silla in the next hour as we continue this 2023 Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown.
0: Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for Conversations of Consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. This is Bryant Shanley, Al's executive producer, and we are continuing this Cresta in the Afternoon countdown today. And uh, once again, wishing you all a very Merry Christmas, hoping that you had a wonderful day yesterday, and we will be continuing to celebrate the Christmas season over the next several days. Uh, Let's do a quick review of where we've been on this countdown over the last couple of days. We began back with number 34, John Zernetsky, reviewed the worst Supreme Court decisions of all time. Also, we heard from Peter Herbeck, what is the fire of the Lord? Uh, Al had a commentary Back to one of the first stories of this year Damar Hamlin when he collapsed on, on the NFL field and the public outpouring of prayer we saw from that also we heard from Stan Butt a year with Jean Valjean and Cosette Roger Nutt uh, discussed the sacrament of anointing and how to die is gain Cinder Meisel shared the story of the Inquisitor who refused to burn witches we also looked at Nazis and Nuremberg with Michael Pakalik and Tom Madden asked was Constantine a Christian and by what sign did he conquer also, we uh, broke into the countdown for one day as Al had a new commentary responding to this recent Vatican document, which we'll continue to discuss in the new year. Also, Dan Felpott discussed St. John XXIII's Pacham and Terrace, and Wes Smith looked at uh, more and more pushback that we're seeing against gender affirming care. We heard from Carlos Ayer, who discussed the Reformations, the plural, and their impact today. Also, Bill Cook introduced us to St. Francis. Paul Kangor looked at the history of the Catholic Church and slavery. Mona Sharon discussed how Hamas uses Israel's humanity against it. Helen Alvery looked at religious liberty after the sexual revolution. Al shared a commentary on Rachel and Hollander and her response to the Schenken of Larry Nasser. Larry Feingold looked at how St. Paul prophesied the future of the Jews. Raymond Ibrahim, why is Osama bin Laden's letter to America suddenly so popular? John Farina, who was the Catholic revivalist Isaac Hecker and why is he being um, advanced on his path to beatification? Uh, On Christmas Day, we broke away from the countdown again. Monica Miller discussed the authority of Mary. And Steve Ray uh, explained why our whole faith rests on Genesis. And then uh, in the first hour of today's program, at number 14, we returned to the countdown. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn shared some biblical wisdom for exiles. And how uh, in his second letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul assures us that we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested. In this hour, we hit number thirteen in the twenty twenty three crest in the afternoon countdown. And, as I said in the first hour, this is one of the fun things about doing this is we get to mix up some very different topics in each day's program. Mark Twain and how he was haunted by God. He's the quintessential American author. He wrote the quintessential great American novel, Huck Finn, other great works like The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Uh, one interesting thing about Mark Twain, although he was certainly not a Catholic and not even really a Christian, he also wrote an excellent biography of, of uh, Joan of Arc, which he said was his favorite thing to work on. And he traveled extensively to France in, in the working of that novel. So we get to know Mark Twain's faith. He was haunted by God. And Joseph Cell explains what that means. We're going to skip the news and get right to that discussion. Take it away, Al.
2: The best. 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 Of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 13. 13.
3: Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Few authors are more distinctly American than Mark Twain. And he was a complicated man. Uh, his views on politics, religion, and other issues are often misunderstood, even to this day. We're going to be talking with Dr. Joseph Cicilla, who's head of the English Language and Literature Department at Eastern Michigan University, where he teaches a variety of undergraduate and graduate courses in American literature and literary criticism. In 2002, he received Eastern Michigan University's highest honor, the Ronald W. Collins Distinguished Faculty Award for Teaching. His research focuses on American literature of the 19th and early 20th centuries, and he serves as assistant editor of the Mark Twain Annual. He's co-author of Heretical Fictions, Religion in the Literature of Mark Twain. Joe, it's good to see you again. It's good to see you. Thanks. Uh, Let's. First of all, let's take the basic thing. Uh, this will get us into the river too. Why? Why is his name Samuel
14: Clemens? Why do we call him Mark Twain? Uh, so this is a point of uh, uh, argument within Twain studies. Uh, he claimed that he borrowed it from a uh, another steamboat pilot who also happened to write. Uh, when that person uh, passed in, I think 1862 or something like that, Twain is out in Nevada at this time. Uh, he started to sign his uh, work as Mark Twain. And uh, the, the, the explanation that most people uh, give for this is that uh, Mark Twain is a steamboatsman call yeah. for two fathoms of water. And you need two fathoms, 12 feet of water for uh, a steamboat to navigate a river. And so when you're moving into safe water, you, you hear steamboatmen uh, uh, cry, Mark Twain. Mark Twain, okay. Uh, but it works the other way, too. If you're getting into the shallows uh, and you hear Mark Twain, uh, it's, it's dangerous. Okay. And so it works both ways. But um, a biography uh, published uh, in the last year or two uh, makes the argument that uh, it actually comes from uh, his bar days out in Nevada. Uh, you would go into a, a, a bar and he would order a double and um you he would buy it on credit and uh as he was leaving he would uh, tell the bartender to mark twain you know two <laughs> strokes of the chalk um so uh i find that i i, act, I always dismiss the uh, the bar uh explanation because it uh it seems so um natural that the the steamboat one would make sense but uh but i'm i'm persuaded that it's probably the bar and that he uh he whitewashed the source as he Uh, became more and more (laughs) respectable. Yeah, right, right. Uh, Let's talk about his upbringing. Um, What kind of uh, family? Uh, He was born, he was the sixth of seven kids born uh, in the Missouri frontier, uh, Florida, Missouri, which is about 30, 40 miles off the river. Um, His father was a lawyer, a judge, um, and a tireless uh, sort of speculator. Um, always uh, always chased money in ways that uh, Twain himself uh, and, his, and his oldest brother would over the course of their career. Uh, when he was about nine, uh, ten years old, uh, his father moved the family to Hannibal, which is right on the river, uh, set up a shop, um, but was never quite the success that he had hoped for himself, mm-hmm. uh, Twain's father. Um, So, uh, yeah, so uh, lived on the American frontier. His mom? His mom, uh, just a a typical uh, frontier housewife, Mm. uh, taking care of seven kids. Were they active... Of churchgoers, or they Christians. were. Okay. Yeah, uh, the father was something of a skeptic. Okay. Um, there were two Presbyterian congregations in Hannibal. Uh, the mother belonged to the more conservative, the more strict, okay. and so that was his catechism. Uh, uh, you see this a little bit in uh, Tom Sawyer, for example, going to uh, church on Sunday, and that was that was his um, that was his introduction to Christianity. In when he um, when does he leave the family so the the dad dies um, when he is uh... twelve or thirteen okay. and so at this point he's uh... he's taken out of school uh... he goes to work for his oldest brother who's uh, about ten years older than him okay. and uh, his brother runs a newspaper and so twain's uh... twain's job is to set type uh, and he's uh, he's just the uh, the all-around handy person in the uh, in the newspaper office. Uh, he eventually leaves uh, Missouri and uh, travels through New York and Washington D.C. as a teenager, uh, as a as an itinerant um, newspaper uh, worker. How's he? When does the
3: urge to write? Emerge with him
14: almost immediately. He's uh, he's writing as a fourteen or fifteen year old mm-hmm. little news clips. Uh, they're always almost always hoaxes, <laughs> uh, and uh, he gets his older brother in trouble uh, when uh, his his name is Orion. When Orion leaves the uh, newspaper um, for a bit of time in Twain's uh, Sam Clemens was his real name mm-hmm. uh, in in Sam's uh, care. Um, he wrote some things that got some people really, really mad. So it's he's he's doing it almost from the beginning. Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, when does he, uh, he he writes about life on the river? How does he get
14: involved there? So he um, he had plans uh, to travel to South uh, America in the late 1850s. So he's born 1835. Uh, so, in the years leading up to the American Civil War, um, he decides he's going to go chase a, a dream in South America. Okay. Uh, while he's traveling from the Midwest down to St. Louis, um, he does this on a steamboat and actually falls in love with the the river. And he is able to convince uh, a pilot on the river to take him in as an apprentice. Yeah. And uh, he learns the river under this individual. His name is Horace Bixby. (laughs) And he spends uh, a good good bit of time learning the river. Uh, He he describes it. So learning the river was just not getting from one city to the next. The the Mississippi River, before the Army uh, engineers went down and put in the levees, was always shifting. And so there were channels, and the channels would shift. And um, it's like navigating a hallway uh... in the middle of the night uh... with uh... with the lights off is okay. the way that he would describe yeah. it and so most of us can do that and he, he learned to do that uh... the problem is when someone leaves a basket of clothes in the hallway uh... Um, yeah. or a table you move a table uh... that you forgot about uh... that causes real problems Yeah, yeah. so he's um, he uh... he becomes a steamboat pilot uh... it is a prestigious occupation in the mm-hmm. mid-19th century makes a lot of money I think the analogy would be like an airline pilot these oh, days, okay. right? Got to travel quite a bit. And then the Civil War came along and shut down all steamboat traffic on the river. Uh-huh. and uh, his his dream um, of of the career as a steamboat pilot came to an end.
3: What does he do uh, in the war?
14: Um, so uh, Missouri is a border state. Um, it uh, It allowed slavery, but it never f- uh, fully or formally uh... came in on the side of the confederacy uh... so uh... folks uh... organized young men organized uh... militias uh... either for the confederacy or the uh... the union he and a bunch of friends uh... organized uh... a a little militia for the confederacy and they went out with very romantic ideas (laughs) about war Uh, and about two weeks in someone shot at them and they all scattered (laughs) Uh, his his older brother Orion again uh, is um, is uh, his newspaper was uh, supported the Lincoln campaign. Okay, and so as a result, when Lincoln was uh, elected, uh, his brother was uh, offered a, a job out in the Nevada Territory to serve under the uh, uh, the territory secretary. Okay. And so Twain followed his uh, brother out west in 1861. Is that where his writing career begins? It is. Yeah. Yeah, so he um very quickly figures out that there's not much to do uh with his brother in Nevada. Uh he tries um uh mining just a little bit. Uh, this is the uh, the big silver load of the uh, mid-19th okay. century. Uh doesn't uh, experience much success with that. Um but he uh does uh he does experience success uh, with writing, and he uh, joined the staff of uh, the Territorial Enterprise. Um, newspaper. Uh, yeah, newspaper. Yeah, newspaper. And it, uh, it had a staff of really remarkable men, men who were principled, men who um, could write, uh, men who were really funny, um, and men who were committed to the idea of justice. And this shaped him wow. uh, as, a, as a young thinker, a young uh, writer yeah
3: so he he um I mean he because of his humor, sometimes you'd think that maybe he doesn't he isn't committed uh, to a uh, a life of virtue like that, yeah, um
14: but not so no he uh, at 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 bottom uh, twain uh, one of his um, obsessions is is justice, yeah. and you see that begin to inform the way that he deals with race, for example, uh, later in his career. Success comes to him. How old? Well, uh, success almost immediately as a writer. Uh, he's um, he's courted by some San Francisco newspapers. Um, he goes out to San Francisco and begins writing at uh, at, at at these places, um, and he uh, he he convinces the editors to send him out to write uh, travel letters uh, from uh, what are called at the time the Sandwich Islands. <laughs> And it's what we call Hawaii today. Yeah. And so he got his boss to uh, send him to Hawaii uh, to, <laughs> to do work. And um, these were so popular that he came back. He was uh, courted by a New York newspaper. And so he traveled to New York after that. And uh, he talked those editors into sending him on uh, what turns out to be really the first cruise Hmm. um in american history it's uh it's put together by um uh thomas beecher and uh some really pious uh uh, is that of the famous beecher family lyman beecher and harry beecher stowe those people Uh, yeah no twain was twain knew these these folks very well. (laughs) well Um, so it was like a, a version of the uh, the Good News Cruise, <laughs> and uh, he, he got uh, the editors to pay his passage. He traveled uh, the Mediterranean, visited the Holy Land, wrote letters back to the newspaper. When he got back, he collected those uh, letters into his first book, a travel book called Innocence Abroad, okay. and it was an overnight success. Wow. Um, w- w- where are women? In these years, uh, uh, you talking about just generally speaking yeah. in in American culture? No, it, I'm sorry, with him. Oh, uh, he's a, a young man. Yeah, yeah, traveling yeah. around. Well, he um, he ran from some of the uh, reputation uh, that he had established out west. Okay. Um, these were these were frontier towns, and uh, they were rough. And yeah. our depictions of them in, in in movies, for example, are pretty spot on. <laughs> Um, but while he was on this cruise, he met a young man uh, from Elmira, New York, um, uh, Charlie Langdon. And uh, Charlie had a charm with a, with a photograph in it, a very small charm. And it was a, a photograph of his sister. And uh, Twain uh, recounts that he fell in love with the picture immediately. Wow. And he spent uh, the next uh, set of uh, months uh, trying to convince, once they returned, trying to convince Charlie to invite him to Elmira, New York, which is in upstate. And uh, he would spend the next uh, year or two trying to convince the parents uh, uh, to, to let him have access to the daughter. Uh, hold it there. We'll come back okay. and pick up the conversation. Uh,
3: my guest, uh, Dr. Joseph Sicilla. Uh, taking us on a tour of the life of Mark Twain. I'm Al Cresta and we'll be right back.
8: Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo.
12: I repeat, I'm sure ad nauseum to the guys who are here, a line from Pope Benedict Emeritus now, who used to say over and over again, to be a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice, but the result of an event an encounter, a meeting with the living God and the person of Jesus Christ. This and nothing less is what it means to be a Christian. So we said the new evangelization is new in ardor. That's a kind of old-fashioned word. What in the world is ardor? Ardor is zeal, fervor, passion. Are you passionate about Jesus? Passionate about Jesus. Are you zealous for Jesus? Are you fervent for Jesus? Are we fervent for the gospel? Are we passionate about helping this world come to know him?
8: Dr. Ray Gurendi.
5: Most experts don't think like you do. Go to the computer, type in child self-esteem, search. Last time I looked, 31 million options. The experts believe self-esteem is the preeminent moral virtue. Type in child, humility, search. Crickets. Why? When was the last time you heard a secular expert talk about humility? But that's at the very core of the virtues we want to teach our children. Always remember one thing. When an expert tells you how to raise your child, you have to ask a question. Is this expert? of the same worldview that I am? Does he or she value the same virtues I want to impart to my children? Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with a book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out.
0: Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non for profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at
10: StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org.
2: The best. 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 best, 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 of Crest in the Afternoon countdown. <laughs> Number 13. Good afternoon. I'm Al cresta With
3: me is Dr. Joseph Sicilla, head of the English Language and Literature Department at Eastern Michigan University and co-author of Heretical Fictions, Religion in the Literature of Mark Twain. We've been going over uh, his life, and uh, he sees the picture
14: of... Charlie Langdon's sister, Olivia. Uh, uh Olivia is her her name. Uh, he called her Livy uh, her her throughout his life. Um, so he spends some time trying to just talk Charlie into inviting him to meet the family and ultimately meet Livy. Uh, he does that he He uh, visits the home, uh, but the parents uh, know something about his reputation. <sighs> Okay. Uh, and they want nothing to do with him. But Twain is relentless, and he um, he comes back, and he comes back again. And um, the father uh, finally says, "Okay, so uh, you you need to help me uh, with uh, Livy's mom. Uh, get me some letters of recommendation." Okay. And so he writes back west to some of the folks that he knew in Nevada, and um, he returns to the house and. The father has a stack of letters, uh, and uh, he asks Twain, uh, "Do you know what's in these letters? <laughs> and whether his uh, his references were um, playing jokes on him, or whether they were um, maybe getting some revenge uh, on on Twain uh, for the way that they were treated by him out uh-huh. west." The, uh, the the letters were were scandalous. Oh gosh! And uh, the the father looks at him and says, "Apparently you don't have any friends, uh, but I'll be your friend." And wow. he advocated for Twain uh, within the family after that, and eventually they were married. Uh, that's just <laughs> and he and he remains utterly faithful to oh, he, her. Is it? I mean, you know. I, I, I don't know of another love story in American literature yeah. um, that is uh, more touching than this one. He was deeply dedicated uh, yeah. and devoted to uh, to Libby, yeah. no question, no question.
3: Um, they they marry. Uh, do they stay in Elmira? I mean, I know they go to Hartford.
14: Yeah. So there's a there's a little stint in Buffalo. The father okay. um, and and again, Livy's family is incredibly wealthy. the The father is a, a timber and coal baron, and so uh, he sets up. On the day of the wedding, um they uh they sent him off to Buffalo and uh the father had purchased a, a big home for them mm. and set him up with a share in a Buffalo newspaper. Mm. And so Twain uh was living a, a rather conventional life as a as a newspaperman, um, writing for the newspaper, editing, and then um everything started to go sideways for him. So we're talking this is probably 1869, 1870. Okay. Um, the father uh... in the spring of eighteen seventy uh... is diagnosed with stomach cancer oh. um, livy is pregnant with their first child mm-hmm. uh, the uh... father is declining rapidly so uh... twain and his uh... wife go back to Elmira. she cares for her father uh... that august he dies and livy uh, experiences, you know, the equivalent of a nervous breakdown. She's pregnant. Uh, a friend, uh, comes to care for Livy. Now they're back in Buffalo and, um, a childhood friend, she contracts typhoid and dies, uh, within three or four weeks of, of arriving in Buffalo in Twain's bedroom, uh, wow. where she's staying. And then, uh, Oh. Then uh, the uh, the first Does he blame himself for that? Oh, he he starts to yeah. yeah. He's he's got an uh, incredible capacity for blaming himself for things that were out of control. Yeah. Um, his is their firstborn son is born prematurely, uh, not expected to live that uh, fall. Um, and by the time they, so this is November of eighteen. Seventy uh, by um, by February of seventy one, um, he's had it and he's got to get out of town, uh, and so he he moves the family from Buffalo back to Elmira, and at this point he has already put his eye on Hartford, okay. um, and. Uh, that's eventually the destination they, they land. Harvard had a reputation as a, a, a great city at that time. Yeah, so there were um, so it was one of the first planned communities in American okay. um, society. Um, there were wealthy people living there. Harriet Beecher Stowe uh, turned out to eventually to be Mark Twain's uh, next door neighbor. <laughs> Uh, And so um, it's, you know, Hartford at the time is halfway, well it still is, halfway between Boston and New York. It's a a day's journey from both, Mm -hmm. going in opposite directions. And so Hartford was kind of a a layover if you're traveling from New York to Boston or Boston to New York. Mm -hmm. So it had that advantage.
3: Um, When when does, is is there, he's successful as a writer. Mm -hmm
14: uh he's published citizens abroad yep. when does he publish adventures of uh, tom sawyer it's a good question um so this is something i'm working on right now um, so he publishes uh Innocence Abroad in 1869. Uh, the next book is also a travel book. Travel books are widely popular in the 19th century. Sort of like watching the Travel Channel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you can you can tour vicariously through them. Um, so uh, Roughing It is a travel book of his adventures out west. That's 1871. He writes a couple of small things, and then in 1876 he publishes Tom Sawyer. Okay.
3: Does is that like an explosion of success?
14: No, you not know, it's, really. okay. it's funny, you know, the um, even he uh, didn't think that uh, books like Tom Sawyer or Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in his own lifetime were his best work. Um, the public loved the uh, the travel books, and really, uh, long into the 20th century, Mark Twain was remembered for his travel writing. Really? It's, yeah, it's really not in the 1950s <laughs> that Huckleberry Finn emerges yeah. as the great American novel.
3: Yeah, I, I had no idea uh yeah that's that, it was standard reading when I was growing up as a kid yeah. in in the 50s and 60s um, where is he with
14: his well what kind of faith is he exhibiting at this time sure so um, he's he's raised in a, a, a what we would call frontier Calvinism uh, a, a congregate a Presbyterian congregation mm. in Hannibal um, and it's um, it's pretty stern. Yeah. Um, he uh he leaves it behind uh so he claims uh as, as early as his uh late teens early 20s. He's reading Tom Paine. Yeah. Uh, lots of Americans are. Yeah. And so he would have self-described as a Deist probably okay. w- in that period where he's out in um, out in Nevada. He meets uh Livy and her family. They are committed um New England evangelicals, okay. um, liberal, um, uh, socially active. Um, the the father was um, friends with uh, Frederick Douglass, for example. Okay. The house was a stop yeah. on the Underground Railroad.
3: Evangelicals were liberal back then.
14: Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, yeah. Uh, politically and and socially, um, and and because of that, because of his, um, because of Livy's training, or or Livy's um, faith. He, I, I, I think he gave it a good effort. Yeah. Um. To to come back to Christianity, yeah. he could never quite do it though.
3: Okay, that's what I was wondering.
14: Yeah. He he. Um, William Dean Howells, a friend, uh, also a, a novelist from the late nineteenth century, a, a, a really influential figure in American art in the late nineteenth century, um, described uh, the heroic lies um, that he would um, he would assent to in, in um, for his wife's sake mm. eventually uh, Livy um, became skeptical of Christianity too and uh, so by the um, by the time he's writing Tom Sawyer um, he's he's he claims to have left Christianity okay. behind All right. but it's the argument that uh, that my my co-author and I make that um, so uh, he he's indoctrinated it in 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 frontier calvinism and it becomes you know our, our friend father john ricardo likes to use the analogy of lenses
1: yeah.
14: um... they're the lenses that he sees reality through human nature uh... the way that the cosmos works uh... he he tries on other lenses but um... deep down um, he never leaves it behind
3: hmm. interesting Yeah. so uh... Did, when he uh, so when six so when does when was he
14: when does he he has that you, we talking earlier everything he touches turns to gold for yeah. period when is that period so he publishes tom sawyer 1876 um by this time, he's um, he's building a home in um, in Hartford. Yeah. Uh, it's still there. If I, I encourage anyone who's yeah. traveling through the area to stop, it's it's Smithsonian quality um, uh, in, in its uh, presentation. Um, it's about this time uh, that uh, Livy inherits um, the rest of her fortune from her family. Uh, by 1880, um, they're back in Hartford. They do some traveling in Europe um, in the late 1870s, and he's starting to self-publish, and he's starting to uh, dabble in business mm-hmm. uh, investments, and uh, everything he's touching is turning to gold. Yeah, um, estimates are that uh, in uh, 19 or 1880, for example. Um, he he brought in you know close to six million dollars in today's in today's wow. money uh, wow. in income alone. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, we we now talk about uh, Huckleberry Finn as this great step forward in race relations. Yeah, is that true? I think so. Okay.
14: Uh, you uh, and tell us why. I mean, yeah. Um, so when he's writing this book. Um, he's, you know, so he he's writing Huckleberry Finn on the heels of the publication of Tom Sawyer. So it's it's in his mind a sequel to Tom Sawyer. Uh, he discovers the character of Huckleberry Finn halfway through writing Tom Sawyer, and he realizes that this is his character. Okay. And so he decides he's going to tell Huckleberry Finn in the first person, put it in Huck's voice. Okay. Tom Sawyer was told in the third person. Um, was that common? To have uh... yeah you could re- lots of people wrote in in the first okay. person uh, huckleberry finn was the first novel to be written in the first person completely in dialect though okay the american okay. voice and so that's that's part of its breakthrough um, the other thing uh... that i think is important is um, so the book is written in the eighteen eighties it's set in the eighteen forties it purports um to be about slavery, mm-hmm. um, slavery is dead issue in 1880. By 1880, yeah. Hold, hold, Daryl. We'll come sure. back and pick pick up on that because
3: uh, the characterization of uh, Jim is something that's again came became controversial. I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. We're talking about uh, Mark Twain. My guest, Dr. Joseph Sicilla from Eastern Mission University. Uh, again, a complicated man. Uh, fascinating story. I'm Al Creston.
9: Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit.
8: Do you feel as though life is flying past you? Are you desperate for a way to find moments of peace and quiet? Lord, teach me to pray. The free Ignatian prayer series will open your heart to His voice, to the peace you are seeking, and the only love that fulfills the human heart, Jesus. God is calling you to true joy, knowing Jesus personally. Lord Teach Me to Pray is free. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, click on the red box, order the Lord Teach Me to Pray series now. Go to lordteachmetopray.com.
9: Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values, Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Fund. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.
6: The wisdom of Mother Angelica. I come from the other side of the tracks. See? <laughs> My uncle used to have slot machines. <laughs> Put one nickel in it and it's empty. <clears throat> And I brought him home in a bag. And my mother looked at me. Where did you get all that money? I said, "I won them. You didn't win him. He fixed the machine.
7: I didn't care if he fixed the machine or not. You
8: know." EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic.
7: Why is the Church always considered holy? The Church is held to be holy because Jesus Christ, who alone with the Father and the Holy Spirit is holy, He loved the Church as His bride. The Catholic Catechism tells us he gave himself up for her so as to sanctify her and endow her with the gift of the Holy Spirit for God's glory. United with Christ, the Church is sanctified by Christ. With him and through him she becomes sanctifying. All the activities of the Church are directed toward the sanctification of persons in Christ and the glorification of God. It is in the Church that by the grace of God we acquire holiness— The church on earth already is endowed with real, though imperfect, sanctity. In her members, perfect holiness is yet to be acquired, though all members are called to perfect holiness. Charity is considered the soul of holiness. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism.
9: It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk.
8: You've probably heard Venerable Father Patrick Payton say, the family that prays together stays together. Well, as the director of the Peyton Institute, I like to add that the family that plays together also prays together. Family play rituals like family days, game nights, and other similar activities aren't just fun things to do. They're ways Catholic families remind each other to celebrate the life God has given them. Daily play rituals remind families that both in good times and in hard times, God always wants us to look for reasons to rejoice. That's one reason family rituals for playing together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com the best best best
11: best Best. 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 Best.
2: of Crest in the Afternoon Countdown (laughs) number 13 good afternoon
3: I'm Al Cresta with me Dr. Joseph Sicilla, head of the English Language and Literature Department at Eastern Michigan University and co-author of Heretical Fictions Religion in the Literature of Mark Twain Huckleberry Finn um, is written uh, at the time Reconstruction is dead. Mm -hmm. The Klan is coming alive. Yeah. And it's set in 1840 when slavery was still an institution. But by 1880, you pointed out that that's a dead issue. The Civil War settled it. Yeah, yeah. So why would he spend so much time. Developing the character of Jim and Huck Finn's response relationship. Yeah. With, I mean that's the key to the Huck Finn rise relationship. Yeah, between the two.
14: Yeah, uh, the the question of slavery was settled, uh, but racism was not. Gotcha. And in fact, it uh, historians uh, argue regularly that what African Americans experienced under Jim Crow, which you know is ushered in late 1870s, early 1880s, and really. Um, uh, defines American culture for the next hundred years. Um, what African Americans experience under Jim Crow is, um, in many ways, worse than what they experienced under slavery. At least under slavery, um, a, a black had the protection of his owner. Yeah. Um, under Jim Crow, he was vulnerable. Vulnerable. It's every, everybody. It's everybody. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. 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 So, uh, what's the relationship then between Huck, and? Uh,
14: the runaway slave yeah so um, Huck is uh, one of those rare characters in Twain um, who I I think he would uh, he would say that he um, he rooted for he admired Um, he he loved Huck's desire um, for something more for freedom um, for something more spiritually and socially fulfilling Um, Twain didn't believe that those things were possible um, but he wanted to believe in them and cheered on characters who share that sentiment. Yeah. Um, he grows to appreciate Jim as a human being. Um, that is all turned upside down uh, by the end of the novel with um, Tom Sawyer's reappearance, who is not a good character, someone Twain did not like. Huh. And um, over the course of his career, he went back to Tom Sawyer time and again, Tom Sawyer, the character represents, um everything um that he despised about human nature conniving Hi- hypocritical yeah. um cruel yeah. um all those things yeah
3: the 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 question of uh, at one point in Huckleberry Finn, he has to decide um whether he's going to turn. Jim back to his owner or inform the owner or something yeah so so
14: they're they've been they've been kidnapped by uh, a couple of uh, um, you know uh, grifters on the river gotcha. and uh, he's he's been trained his entire life that slavery um, was good and that helping someone escape that like he is with Jim is um is sinful Mm -hmm. and so he makes the decision at one point at late in the novel to go to hell um uh, and help jim yeah and it's uh it's a moment um that that seems climactic in the book but we have 10 more chapters to get through (laughs) and everything gets undone um because again twain didn't believe that that kind of progress was possible with human nature Human nature was fixed, and he learned that from Calvinism. Well, wow.
3: that, that, yeah. Uh, l- let's let's pick him up, um, and his business uh, goes south. He, he he no longer everything he turns touches now becomes miserable.
14: Yeah, he's you know he's he he's, he's so interesting. So the conventional view of Twain is that he was a horrible businessman, um, blew his fortune uh, on bad business deals uh, because he just had no acumen for it. Um, But if you look at his, um, you look at some of the facts, I mean, he he sold his books uh, from the beginning um, by subscription rather than in a bookstore. And it was not um, the uh, cultivated way to sell books, Mm -hmm. but it made him a lot of money. And it was a smart business decision. He... um, he, he uh, set up his own publishing firm and convinced ulysses s grant to write yeah, a memoir that's right that's right and he uh, he was able to turn over to Grant's widow because Grant died just he, he was um, dying of throat cancer as he was writing his memoir in the mid-1880s he was able to turn over to uh, Grant's family the large the single largest um, royalty check in American publishing history, something on the order of two or three million dollars in today's money. Um, and it sold. Everyone wanted a copy of this book. Yeah. Uh, and that was his idea, a presidential memoir, which, are, which is fairly common these days. That's right, yeah. Um, what happened to Twain is that um, uh, a perfect storm of economic um, uh, crisis and um, bad decision-making with books um, which books to publish. So 1893 is when he gets wiped out. Um, he was, the one time I, I heard you going to publish
3: the, 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 uh, uh, the biography of
14: uh, Leo XIII. Yeah, no, and he did. He, he did. Yeah, okay. no, so right after he publishes uh, Grant's memoir, he figures that there are so many Catholics on the globe that this is a surefire bestseller. Every Catholic is going to want one. <laughs> <laughs> and so he secured the rights to pope leo's biography and it didn't lose money but it didn't come close to yeah, what he expected yeah. it to sell his attitude towards catholics uh... C- conventional 19th century for the most part yeah. um... you know he writes a lot of books set in uh, medieval times so catholicism yeah. is his um, register for religious organized religion mm-hmm. uh... Um, joan of arc is still read yeah joan and joan is joan is different um... you know uh, uh, and he eventually came to um, admire Catholicism. Uh, some, uh, a, a group of nuns took care of uh, his youngest daughter um, who was suffering from epilepsy okay. and said at one point uh, late in life that if he were ever to join a congregation again, it would be a, a Catholic congregation. Wow. But Joan of Arc is so interesting, Um, and there are all kinds of reasons why he writes that book. Uh, You know, it it seems to come out of nowhere, but remember the the manuscripts for her trial were discovered in the middle of the 19th century. And um, everyone was writing about Joan. And his daughters were also, um, when he starts this book in the early 1890s, also turning from teenagers into young women. And a lot of what goes into Joan is this idealization of virtue, uh, a yeah. virtuous woman. And um, it's informed by what's happening in his own family. Wow. Yeah. Uh,
3: so his business, um, he wasn't as bad a businessman as, as he's often made out. But he does go bankrupt at some point. He does point. go
14: bankrupt. So what happens is something the equivalent of the housing crisis we experienced, the Great Recession, yeah. you know, 06, 08. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I knew lots of people who were responsible, uh, lost their homes, yeah. lost their businesses, yeah. had to move. And um, that's that's what took him out. Um, we call it the Panic of 1893. Um, you know, uh, the it, If... If the Great Depression had not occurred in the 1920s and 30s, this is the economic disaster that the country would have remembered. Okay. Um, the Wizard of Oz is, uh, you know, the film that oftentimes is read as a, a commentary on the Great Depression. Um, strangely enough, the book that that was adapted from was written in the 1890s about the Panic of 1893. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't he declares bankruptcy but he ends up being persuaded to pay back his creditors which it wasn't necessary he was already well known um tell me about his decision
14: yeah so uh 1893 goes um bankrupt uh it's horribly embarrassing um uh, to him to his wife Uh, At this point, he is uh, befriended uh, Henry Rogers, the number two guy at Standard Oil, and uh, uh, Rogers takes over his finances, um, and together, uh, Rogers and Livy, though the settlement for the bankruptcy only required him to pay, I think, 10 cents on the dollar to his creditors, uh, both Livy and Rogers convinced him to pay dollar for dollar and um he agreed and uh the the way he paid this off is t- is to go on a a worldwide lecture tour which he despised at that time oh he yeah he anyone who travels uh in their in their youth you know in their 20s uh, grows weary of at the hotels and the yeah. the, the trains see so spends a year on the road literally uh circling the globe and he uh he uh, Earns his uh, earns the the fortune back, pays all of his creditors dollar for dollar, and this is really the point at which um, the world begins to uh, lionize Mark Twain. He, he is already the most conspicuous person on the planet, um, but the the tragedies that he experienced in in that ten year period, the 1890s, and the fact that he committed to paying back his creditors just wins everyone's ima- or, uh, admiration.
3: Is he the is he the
14: archetypical American uh, writer? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Faulkner calls him all of our grandfather. Hemingway, uh, famously in the 1930s, refers to Huckleberry Finn as um, the place where all uh, modern American literature comes from.
3: Okay, so it is it is a, a watershed book then oh, for absolutely. American
14: literature. Yeah, no question.
3: What What was the controversy? I I don't know if it's still going on, but I can I remember it 20 years ago. There are people trying to say Huckleberry Finn was inappropriate for uh, high school students or something like that because of its treatment of uh, slavery. Uh, in its treatment of Jim, what was that about?
14: Yeah, so it actually had more to do with the use of uh, what we refer to as the N word. Oh, okay. All and right. so um, the, the the gentleman or the person who put that book together was actually my dissertation director. <laughs> so I, I know the story pretty uh, pretty well. Um, his name is Alan gribben He's at Auburn University in Alabama, and uh, what he was experiencing on a regular basis was uh, a situation where schools. Could not assign Huckleberry Finn to their students because of the N word, and so he put together an edition and replaced the N word with um, with slave. And um, his point—he's very clear in the introduction of this book—he does not recommend this as a substitute for the um, the original. But in places where the book is not being used because of it, he argues that it is better to get some Twain than no Twain at all. He was. He was um, really taken to task in the media. Ironically enough, you know, the people like in 60 Minutes and on the late night shows who criticized him um, wouldn't say the word themselves. (laughs) They, you know, they used, you know, the euphemism N word themselves. Um, So I think he made his point. Yeah. No, that's great. I I didn't realize it revolved around that. Yeah. Um,
3: His, Livy dies um, and. He loses his children.
14: Yeah.
3: He is a man of extraordinary Everest style success. At the end of his life, what's he like?
14: Lonely. Um, He increasingly. So, Livy dies in 1904. Twain lives uh, another five or six years after he dies in 1910. He's survived by just one of his children, Clara, um, who um, coincidentally enough. Marries a, a composer named Asap Gabrilovich, who um, who takes the first um, uh, appointment uh, as director of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> oh, really? And uh, yeah, he and Clara moved to Detroit uh, after Twain's death, um, but he dies a lonely man. Yeah, and uh, he's never able to. He never has the grace of faith. Never came back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, thanks. Al, thanks. It's going to talk pleasure. for hours. This yeah. is great stuff. Thank you. All right, thank you.
3: Dr. Joseph Sicilla, head of the English Language and Literature Department at Eastern Michigan University, and co-author of *Heretical Fictions: Religion in the Literature of Mark Twain*.
15: The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ is literally and wholly present, body and blood, soul and divinity, under the appearances of bread and wine. St. John the Apostle records the John chapter 6 Bread of Life discourse in which Jesus states that his flesh is true food and his blood true drink. Who better to understand John's writings and subsequent teachings than a disciple and student of John, St. Ignatius of Antioch. In his letter to the Smyrnians in 110 AD, Ignatius writes, I have no taste for corruptible food, nor for the pleasures of this life i desire the bread of god which is the flesh of jesus christ and for drink i desire his blood which is love incorruptible the catholic church absolutely follows saint john and saint ignatius in taking jesus at his word examining the truths of the catholic faith this is faithforensics.org catholic
11: connection with teresa Tomio. So when you see these different media outlets working directly in conjunction or conclusion with the government to suppress stories, what does that say to us about the reliability or lack thereof of the secular media? And then this is combined with a report that came out, a survey that was done on media executives. They interviewed 75 media leaders around the country and they're saying we're done with objectivity. Well, that's not exactly a news flash. But the fact that they're claiming that objectivity is just no longer necessary and we are elitist, we know better, and this is what we're going to do, is frightening. And this is one of the reasons that we stress the importance of having outlets such as The Register and EWTN News Nightly and The World Over and Catholic News Agency and EWTN News In-Depth. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio, Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN
13: Radio.
1: Thank you for joining us over the last two hours of Cresta in the Afternoon. We hope you're continuing to enjoy this countdown of the top moments of the year. And if you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on all the conversations we just had. We'll have a Scott Hahn's book on uh, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home, that's Catholics in Exile. That's available in the online store along with several of his other books. And we'll also have material from Mark Twain and how he was haunted by God. And we'll, in, in the Christian gets Archives, we'll have some material from Joseph Sulla. And we'll also make available a article that we spoke about with Lueldo Amico a few weeks ago about the Catholic uh, themes in the story of Huck Finn. Again, all that available at AveMariaRadio.net. As we go off the air, Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls. We'll continue the countdown tomorrow on Crest in the Afternoon as we work our way towards the number one interview of the year. Hope you have a great evening and God bless.
0: Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at avemariaradio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at avemariaradio.net.